Heat exchanger concerns, management of change issues, and alarm flooding led to a catastrophic industrial accident at the Esso Longford gas plant in Australia. Sadly, all of these errors could have been prevented. Process Safety with Trish and Tracy is a production of Chemical Processing. Chemical Processing focuses on serving engineers, designing, and operating plants in the chemical industry. Welcome to this edition of Process Safety with Trish and Tracy, the podcast that aims to share insights from past incidents to help avoid future events. I'm Tracy Purdom, Senior Digital Editor with Chemical Processing, and as always, I'm joined by Trish Karen, the Director of the iChemE Safety Center. Hey, Trish, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks, Tracy. We're uh, starting into spring, so the days are getting longer and the weather's getting finer. It's quite lovely. What about yourself? Well, we're the exact opposite, so uh, it's getting darker earlier, and that always um, always it does a little something to your to your uh, uh, psyche there. But I'm glad that you're going into springtime, but we're going to be entering into fall and winter here, so we'll take it mm. when we can get it right. Absolutely, but fall is a beautiful season as well. Well, today we're, we're going to discuss an incident from what I understand is basically what launched your career into process safety, the S.O. Longford gas explosion in Australia, which occurred on September 25th, 1998, so we're coming up on a, uh, an anniversary for it. The explosion killed two workers and injured several others, and gas supplies to the state of Victoria were severely affected for two weeks. What about this incident made you decide that you needed to be a part of the solution in terms of process safety? So at the time, I was working at a refinery uh, that was connected by pipeline to one of the plants that was linked to Longford. So that's a long story. But Longford supplied an intermediate plant that then via pipeline shipped crude into the refinery that I was working at. And I was working in the part of the refinery that dealt with tankage and pipeline, so the off-sites areas. And I remember getting... I was, I was standing in the planner's office in the refinery when the phone rang and he answered the phone and he just sort of went a strange pale shade of colour when he answered the phone and he got off the phone and he said there's been an explosion at Longford uh, and they're shutting down the pipelines. I said, okay, so we've got to go into you know the process of shutting down the pipelines and I was very process orientated to just get the job done and he flicked the radio on at that point in time and... What got me the most at that point in time was I was standing there in the control room in the planner's office in a refinery and the news reports were telling us that there had been this explosion and that there were two people missing. And for me at the time, it was the first realisation of the magnitude of risk involved in some of the things that we do. Because we all looked at each other, we knew at this point in time they weren't missing. Mm. They were dead. There was no question about it in our minds. We had already figured that it was a, unsurvivable from what we've heard. And that really rocked me that day. And it's been something that stuck with me. I mean, I, you know, I could describe to you the precise moment of where I was and what I was doing mm. uh, when, when that phone call came through. That so was one of those landmark moments for me. And what it was was... You know, this could have been any of us, and I didn't want to be part of something where that happened. I wanted to be able to, to do something different. I'd previously dabbled in working in safety roles in the company. I had done some work in it. I had, 
I had previously been involved in two small process safety incidents that I hadn't really realised were process safety at the time until reflection many years later. Uh, so this wasn't my first one that I was aware of, that's for sure. Um, but it, it, I said I went home from work that day thinking I've got to try and do something about this. If there's something I can do to stop the next one. And, you know, lofty goals for a young graduate engineer, quite frankly, because, you know, who, who am I to think that I could stop the next Longford, quite frankly? But that was where my head was at at the time. And I have then... It, it, it was the real shift that I made at that point. So the way I did things, the way I operated, the way I worked changed. And then I, I was then given the opportunity to move into safety um, in a more permanent role. And, and I haven't looked back since. And it, I have worked every day of my working career since to try and stop the next Longford. Um, the challenge is you never know if you ever have. So sometimes it seems a little bit futile because you never know. If the incident didn't happen, then you never know that you helped it not to happen. But it's the best I can do to keep going because uh, I have to believe that, that maybe some of the work that we do is helping keep someone safe so that they can go home at night and see their family. Well, a definite silver lining from such a tragedy to have you um, be such a champion for safety. And and I know reading the information on this and the, the incident reports, the short answer uh, for the cause of the failure came down to a heat exchanger. But can you, can you go a little bit more into detail? What is the long tail of that story of what exactly happened? Yes, yeah, so you really have to go back with most process safety incidents years and years and years before the incident ever happened. There had been some um, some plant changes that had been done, um, and they had been risk assessed, but they hadn't been fully risk assessed in terms of truly understanding some of the interface differences. So there were changes to the plant and the way the plant had to operate that hadn't really been taken into account. In addition to that, this was quite an old plant. It was built uh, in the 60s, I think, from memory. It was one of the first. It was the first gas plant at this at this facility. It was gas plant one, and there had been a process where they were rolling out doing quite detailed uh, hazops because the plants were built before hazop ever existed as a process. So they were going through and retrospectively hazoping all of their plants, but the hazop of this plant had been put off for a while. Uh, it, it kept getting put off for various different reasons and it actually hadn't been done at the time the incident occurred. So certainly in the investigation they had suggested that had a rigorous and systematic HAZOP been a applied, um, possibly this causal event would have been identified and then potentially managed. But they had a situation where they had a gas plant operating. They had uh, higher than normal flows because of the changes that had been made to the plant six years earlier. They had a situation where they had uh, alarm flooding, a lot of alarms in their process system, a lot of uh, alarms that would just be hanging around. They'd be silenced, but you couldn't stop the alarm because the, the plant was permanently in an alarm state, so to speak, because of some of the, the changes and, and issues that they had. Then they had a, uh, a series of pump failures occur one day. And when those pump failures occurred, their one part of their plant actually cooled down because they're dealing with gas condensate. So there is very, very cold pieces of equipment, very cold systems, and the potential to build up ice 
in a gas plant. Now, ice does build up in a gas plant because you do have cryogenic areas or almost cryogenic areas. But the problem was that they had ice build up in a part of the plant that was meant to be a lot hotter than it was. It was meant to be um, 240 degrees Celsius, I think, from memory, and it was about minus 42 degrees Celsius. So we're talking a significant temperature difference here, and it was a piece of carbon steel. It was a carbon steel uh, heat exchanger. And that actually started to have a leak occur as well because the steel had contracted to such a point that the flanges were leaking. So, you know, the typical operations sort of idea of if you've got a leaking flange, what do you do? You go and flog it up. Well, they actually checked the tension, and the tension was right, so they couldn't flog it up. Um, so they had to try and stop this leak somehow. And so from past experience, they knew that if you slightly heated up the equipment, the leak would go away. So they tried to do that. Um, what they didn't realise at the time was that when you thermally shocked carbon steel from minus 42 to even ambient temperature uh, with a, a hot oil flow, you will actually have a catastrophic failure and the steel, because the steel has become so brittle, and so at that point in time, the heat exchanger ruptured, uh, caused a, an explosion and fire, and that's tragically how the two operators lost their lives. Um, several others were injured. There was substantial damage to the plant. All sorts of different, uh, different impacts occurred. But the other thing that's interesting that under, underlies all this is years before, a little bit before as well, they'd made a decision to relocate their process engineering department. So this was a gas processing plant where they stabilised and condensate and crude oil from the Bastrate rigs. And they had relocated all their process engineers to their Melbourne office, which is about what, 200 miles away, I guess. And they were sitting in an office in Melbourne. They didn't have full telemetry of the site. So they didn't have the ability to monitor as we see process engineers. We, we typically expect process engineers to be monitoring the flows, the operation of the plant, being able to talk to the operators in the control room, those sorts of things. They didn't have full telemetry available to them. So their relationship was only via a phone, effectively, to talk to the operators, and that created some problems because the engineers didn't really know that this was happening because they were so remote from it going on. And the operating people were found to have not understood the, the consequences of thermal, um, thermal shocking on um, cold steel embrittlement issues. And so that's, that's really some of the key issues that, that came out during the investigation into it. Now, I know the investigation uh, that was launched initially, the, the SO tried to blame, um, Longford tried to blame the accident on worker negligence, but that really didn't fly. Uh, what was the final ruling? The final ruling was that they were actually, there were, there were, two, there were two aspects to the, the investigation as such. So the first one was that the regulator did prosecute um, and ESO at that time were found guilty on all counts that they were charged with and they were um, penalised as a result of that financially. So the, the regulator won their case in court to basically find the company itself guilty of this particular incident. The other thing that occurred though was there was a lot of political concern and fallout over this particular incident and so they established what in Australia and, and in some other countries they have them as well, we call a Royal Commission. A Royal Commission is the highest form of investigation you can do into any topic in Australia. It, uh, an eminent judge is appointed to lead it. They are given a series of 
council assisting a series of investigators, as many expert uh, investigators that, as they need to do the work. And they have the powers of a court of law effectively in terms of compelling testimony and, and working through the facts. So it's, I guess it's our kind of version of, a, of the Chemical Safety Board, but we use royal commissions for all sorts of things. It's not just incident investigation. So, you know, we have a royal commission into the finance sector for example, and you know, misconduct in the finance sector. So we'll do royal commissions into all sorts of different things. But it's, it's our way of getting to the bottom of what actually happened in something. And the royal commission was, was ordered to take place and it looked at the company, it looked at the incident, it looked at the regulator. And it actually found... It, it had findings against both the company and the regulator, not just the company. The regulator was actually found lacking in this incident as well. They hadn't been adequately regulating the facility. And so that was quite an interesting situation because it then led to recommendations that changed the way process safety is regulated in Victoria and that then permeated through the rest of the country as well. So that was the shift that we made towards a safety case type legislation. We got a new department in the regulator that focused on major hazards management. And they, an important part was they were also, they, they were required to create an oversight role of the regulator. So there was a body established to keep an eye on the regulator to make sure the regulator were doing the right thing, which is a fascinating concept. <laughs> um, I, actually, I actually sat on that body for about seven years later down the track in my career. So the body was established from union representatives, company representatives, emergency services, and the community representatives. So it was a group that draw, drew together the people impacted from all angles. Mm -hmm. And we all worked together to keep the regulator honest, basically. You know, we would ask questions, we would challenge some of their, their assumptions or they, they wanted to go down a certain path. Well, no, we don't think you should do that. You know, we'd like to see the regulator do this. Uh, but it was coming from a group that was combined of the community, industry or companies and the unions as well as emergency services. So it was a really fascinating group to be part of and I think it had, again, a lot of benefit in trying to really dig down and, and keep the regulator focused on what they needed to focus on. That was one part that came out of the Royal Commission. Um, the other part that came out was it was the opportunity to really deeply an analyse all of the incidents that led up to it, all of the issues. So that's how we know that the plant hasn't been had up, hasn't hadn't been hazoped. We know that um, they had moved the staff. We knew that they were having trouble with that particular heat exchanger um, and the cooling down of it. We knew that they had experience of well, if I heat it up, it stops leaking. So let's just heat it up. And so what was found then was that the one of the issues, the moving of the operators or uh, the engineers away from the facility created a gap in knowledge and understanding at the facility. And it's one of these challenges that when you're talking about competency, you can actually balance competency with effective supervision. So if you have a, a lower level of competency in a particular work group, if the supervisor has the knowledge, then with a little bit closer supervision, you can actually build those people's competency up and, and balance it out. If you've got a very competent group, your supervisor doesn't need to be technically competent. 
they still need to have knowledge, obviously, but they don't need to be as technically competent. These things can balance out against each other. And what they actually found was that the operators didn't have the competency to understand this phenomenon of uh, low-temperature steel embrittlement. And the engineers who you would expect to have had that knowledge and competence weren't there. So the supervision was, was lacking in that situation. I think that that's one of the key elements that, that came out of it. There were various other management of change related details and, and those sorts of things. But that's sort of it in a in a in a nutshell. So it was around the, the lack of supervision which was effectively why the the operator negligence did not or was not accepted by the courts. Because of that gap in knowledge, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. They weren't deliberately doing anything wrong. They didn't have the knowledge to be doing what they were doing. Now, aside from the tragedy that happened, uh, the plant was the primary gas supplier in the area. What did that mean for Victoria's economy? Well, it had a significant impact on Victoria's economy, um, but but also more so Melbourne, um, the city of Melbourne. So Melbourne is a city, uh, at the time it was probably a city of about Two and a half, three million people, I guess, thinking back that far. We're now at about four million, four and a half, so we were smaller back then. But Melbourne was the second largest city in Australia. It's one of our major, um, major business hubs in the country and it, and it has been for a very, very long time. And all of a sudden, Melbournians woke up to no natural gas piped into their homes anymore. And because we live on the edge of Bass Strait where there's a lot of gas fields. Pretty much everybody in Melbourne has gas hot water systems in their homes. A lot of people have gas heating as well and gas cooking. So the big issue that we had was all of a sudden, for a period of I think that lasted about 20 days, most people in Melbourne had cold showers. Now, that politically was unacceptable to the community. It's, tragically, If you talk to anybody that lived in Melbourne at the time Longford happened, they'll all tell you about cold showers. (laughs) Sadly, they won't remember the names of the two men or even that two men died. Um, You know, I think that's a tragedy in itself, but they they won't remember that detail. They won't know that detail, but they'll remember the cold showers and they'll tell you about the hardship of having cold showers. And so it it was deeply politically frustrating for the leaders at the time, and that's why we had a Royal Commission. Royal Commissions back then weren't called very often. We'd speak to have a lot of them now, but we didn't use that tool very much back then. And so the, the idea of a Royal Commission was quite significant. But not only did Melbourne's households not have any gas, Melbourne's businesses didn't have any gas. So commercial laundries that were laundering, uh, you know, sheets and towels for hotels or hospitals had no steam to do their commercial laundry. All sorts of different impacts started to occur because we didn't have gas. It was estimated in the end to have cost the Victorian economy about $1.3 billion at the time. It's Australian dollars. Um, so I guess that's, what, about a billion US? But that's quite a... Um, that was a substantial amount of money back in the 90s. It was still a substantial amount of money, but it was a lot, worth right, a lot more right. then. Um, and so there was this massive, massive impact, and that was aside from the cost of the damage to the plant uh, and, and what needed to be done there. That was aside from the cost of establishing an entire new regulator, which obviously takes an investment to do. So it certainly had a significant effect around industry, whether it be light industry or even heavy industry. So, you know, other major processing plants 
weren't able to to operate because they didn't have gas supply um, to run their their boilers or their incinerators or those sorts of things. So, you know, certainly there was all those sorts of flow-on impacts to it. At the refinery, we couldn't run our um, the crude that we wanted to run because, you know, you want to blend your crudes to get your optimum output from what you're from your different um, different products, and the uh, the Gippsland oil was actually one of the key feedstocks to the refinery. And in fact, an entire crude unit was built and designed to run on Gippsland oil, not any other oil, Gippsland oil. <laughs> and so it had a significant flow to effect that then affected the ability of um, the refineries to produce gasoline and diesel. So you couldn't just back it up with, well, the refinery can make us some LPG and we can get by on it and, you know, we can get some diesel and some petrol. Well, no, because the refineries couldn't run the normal rates they were running because all of a sudden they didn't have the crude feed they needed to run. So it had all those sorts of different carry-on effect, uh, follow-on effects that occurred as a result of it. It is amazing today that you can still talk to someone about, you know, do you remember, do you remember when Longford happened? Oh, yeah, I had a cold shower. It was horrible. Um, we still were, it, it, it's burnt into our memories, this idea of cold showers at, at, uh, in that September and into October. Lucky it was, it was spring, but, um, you know, it was still quite an impact. Personally, at the time, the place where I lived, we actually didn't have gas. So I, my life in terms of at home went on completely unaffected because I lived in a very old property that had no gas pipe to it. So I had an electric um, hot water system. I had electric cooking had no issues at all. Everybody I worked with was showering at work because that's where the hot water was. <laughs> um, the refinery still was able to heat its water. So, you know, all sorts of different different impacts and, and things you remember. But to this day, the that incident has, has struck, has stuck with me. And yeah, as, as we said at the start, it is it was a turning point for me. And it's, it's one of the key things that drives me every day to do, to do what we do in the safety centre. And, and that brings me up to a question of, of how can the learnings from this in incident mitigate future process safety issues? We've touched on a few of them, but um, oh, what, what, what are good walkaways from this? Well, I think the big challenge we've got is we actually have to learn. We have to stop repeating the same incident mechanism over and over and over again. So, you know, at the time, Low temperature steel embrittlement was not an unknown phenomenon. It was known. Why hadn't we learned? We need to do much better risk assessment activities. We need to really make sure that when we do a risk assessment, it is robust and it gets to the very heart of what the hazards are, what the consequences are, and what we can do about them. We need to make sure that we adequately train our workforce so they not only can do their job, but they understand when it's not going right. They can recognise that potentially something's different, something's wrong, and I need to stop, and we need to assess, and we need to engage with other people to understand what's going on. So unfortunately, there's no new, new learnings in this incident. It's get your risk assessments right and your hazard assessment done. Get your competency right and make sure your people know what they're doing. Make sure that you don't end up in the situation of alarm flood. When this thing happened, they had so many alarms coming through at them in the control room. They had no hope of doing anything. And keep in mind, the control room was severely damaged in the explosion as well. 
the, a lot of the injured were in the control room and they were trying to then figure out what was going on and deal with it. I think they're probably the key, the key takeaways, but sadly, there's nothing new in that. You know, you make sure you've got confidence, understand your hazards and implement controls. There's nothing new in any of that, but that's sadly what we seem to lack being able to, to do on a rigorous and repeatable basis. And until we can get to that point that we do that, day in, day out, we will continue to see incidents occur. We've not yet seen a new phenomena for a very, very, very long time, but we've seen the old ones repeated again and again. And it's the question of how, how do you solve complacency, and, and that's the $64,000 question. You know, I think that's what happens is that, you know, just the complacency, you know, it's not going to happen here, and, and, and we've said before, and you've said before, those are the, you know, dangerous words in the English language that it won't happen here. Um, is there anything you want to add to this conversation that we didn't touch on already? I think it, the, I guess, for me, be curious is a really important way to approach your work. Be curious about what's going on around you and about what might happen next because that will help you start to look for things. We can too often fall into the trap of just going along and doing the job. We just get there, we just do the job. I'm just here to do the job and then I'm going home. But sadly, if we don't have that curiosity to force us to look for things, we might not go home. And so that's, that's I think, the, the point I'd like to leave everybody with today. We have the power to change this. We have the power to fix this. But we actually have to have the curiosity and the will to go through with it. And the curiosity from those that may not have the, the extreme knowledge that, that their higher-ups have. So asking the questions might spur um, safer processes. In the Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's, you know, you, you ask Ask questions. If you don't know something, ask the question. What's the worst that could happen? You might feel that you might look silly, but in fact, you probably won't because if you're having that question in your head, chances are someone else is too. And you might actually trigger a conversation to occur that might prevent an incident and save someone's life. It's, it's that simple. Never be afraid to admit you don't know something. The, the worst thing you can do is pretend that you do know it and just not do anything about it. But never be afraid to admit you don't know something and seek out the question. That's, that's a very noble way to conduct your work. Well, great advice there. And, and I know that um, I'm happy that you're out there fighting for process safety and making sure folks can go home. And um, unfortunate events happen all over the world, and we will be here to discuss and learn from them. On behalf of Trish, I'm Tracy, and this is Process Safety with Trish and Tracy. Stay safe.